Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that our Savior offered a complete obedience to you. And Lord, in moments of honesty, we know that our obedience to you is less than complete. And Lord, we know that an incomplete obedience really is disobedience. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us. That you would encourage us. That you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to submit to you. To trust you. To listen carefully to you and then be willing to obey you. Not half-heartedly. Not deceptively. Not incompletely. But in a way that, that honors you. Lord, it's our desire to serve you. And so again, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be half-hearted servants, but that we would be wholehearted disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter, Hebrews, 1 Samuel chapter 15, got Hebrews on the mind. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt, an area that you and I would call the Negev or the Sinai Peninsula. And he also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he's gone on Around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They've brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, 
When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. And then, did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. We did it for religious reasons. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obey, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. And we're going to pause. I was going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to pause. In Samuel, when it was first presented, it was not two books. It wasn't first and second Samuel. It's one book in the Hebrew Bible. It is a tale of two kings and one prophet. We know that Saul is the first king, and we know that in just a very short while, David is going to come on the scene. Saul becomes a type and a picture of a king who rules not according to the Spirit of God, but according to his own will and according to his own flesh. And David becomes a type and a picture of the man after God's own heart. In the New Testament, there's a reoccurring theme. It is the challenge in the New Testament between a walk in the spirit and a walk in the flesh and the constant desire on the part of your flesh to have control of your life versus the spirit having control of your life. And make no mistake about it, something controls your life. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews said, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The writer was telling us that as we hear things that are spoken in the Bible, we owe it to ourselves to listen attentively. You know, one of the challenges that I have as a pastor and as a teacher is to speak in such a way that I can be heard. But I have no control over the way that people listen. My friend Raul Reese, when he was talking about this particular verse, of lest we drift away, he, he loves to surf. And he talks about how in California, when you go out and you're on the board and you go out into the waves and you paddle out into the water, the surf, as you know, can take you away. And for a, for a brief moment, he found himself just sort of relaxing on the board, just enjoying the sun and enjoying the surf. And 30 minutes turned into an hour, and an hour turned into two, two hours. And he looked up and he found himself about two miles down from where he started. The surf had caused him to drift away. Often we don't just simply turn our backs on God. We find ourselves drifting a little bit each moment further and further away from the Lord. And Saul has substituted saying for doing in verse 13, excuses for confessions in verses 15 and 21, and sacrifice for obedience in, in, chapter, in verse 22. And so a lot of people call this Saul's incomplete obedience. And that's not an inappropriate title for the passage. But in a very real sense, what this passage is going to really talk to us about is a test that God gives 
the failure of that test. And then the rejection of the man who is after the flesh. Now, flesh is one of those words that Christians use a lot in conversation and they don't always define. And you and I have had enough conversation that we've talked about that the flesh isn't just the skin and muscle and bone that constitutes your body. When the Bible speaks of the flesh and when I speak about the flesh, I am talking about everything that you are apart from Jesus Christ. Not just the bad things. Not just the wicked things. Not just the sinful things. But everything. Everything that you are apart from God. You see, we often find ourselves trying to please God. And sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can please God, but not necessarily have to obey Him. We live a life of rebellion and disobedience in our thinking, in our speaking, in our hearts, in our conduct, and the way that we try to make it up to God as we go to church. Hey, look, I know I haven't been on my best behavior, so guess what? I'm going to church as if God is in heaven going, Woo! For a minute there, I didn't think you were going to go to church. Hey, look, I'm going to make it up to you, God. I'm going to open up my Bible and I'm going to read it. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to open up my Bible. I am going to read it and I am even going to talk religiously. Watch. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Now, do you suppose going to church and reading your Bible and speaking religiously somehow impresses God if your heart is far from Him and your mind is far from Him and your conduct is far from Him? And that's the first and important question that we ask in this particular passage. Are you trying to please God without obeying Him? Have you substituted obedience in your own personal friendship and relationship with Jesus? In verse 1, we find Samuel. And Samuel is speaking to Saul. And it says, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Remember Hebrews? We must give the more earnest heed to the things that we heard. And so Samuel, speaking to Saul, says, Look, the Lord has anointed you to be king over his people. And remember... That anointing is to be a source of provision and hope and deliverance. The flesh may believe the commandment of the Lord is critical, but we often find a way to circumnavigate the command. We know that the Lord says something, but we try and figure out ways to weasel out. He's, now listen to what Samuel says. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. In verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from out of Egypt. Now if you're unfamiliar with the story, both in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, and in Exodus chapter 17 through 16, some of you know the story. There was a battle that takes place at, a, at Rephadim. This is a place where the children of Israel have left Egypt. They've crossed over the, the Red Sea, or, and they've, they're, they're making their way, if you will, into their journey and they come into the land of Amalek and Amalek opposes Israel in her pilgrimage into the land of promise. As a matter of fact, do you remember the story of Joshua and the spies? And remember how they went to go scout out the land and when they came across a group of people, they came across a group of people and they characterized them as giants. These people were wicked and weird and fierce. And the Bible talks about how they battled all day and all night. 
And it says in Exodus 17, 16, that the Lord said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so Amalek becomes a type and a picture of opposition to the plan of God and the purpose of God and the mission of God. Not just for the children of Israel, but, but for you. Becomes a type and a picture of sin. You see, when you became a Christian and you discovered that Jesus would save you and would cleanse you and would give you eternal life and forgive you of all of your sins, were you shocked and surprised when you woke up the next day and you were still a sinner? Did it shock you and surprise you that when you woke up the day after you accepted Jesus Christ and there were strange things happening inside of your heart, there were strange thoughts that were taking place in your mind, there were strange things because even though you had accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you found yourself saying things and perhaps even doing things that were strangely reminiscent of what it was like to be an unbeliever. And then you caught yourself and you go, hey, wait a minute, everything has changed. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And, and, and I understand something, that sin is not supposed to reign in my life. And, and Jesus has saved me and He's filled me with the Holy Spirit and He's given me a new life and a new direction. But did you still struggle? Was there still weirdness and wickedness in your life? You see, when you become a Christian, you don't cease being a sinner now, you are saved, and your sin is forgiven. So why is it that it continues to harass us? Well, it's because we are sinners both by nature and by choice. And there's a process that begins to take place in the life of each individual believer as they begin to reckon themselves dead and as they begin to live for Jesus in their life. We are on a pilgrimage. Now, in the story of Exodus chapter 17, when the children of Israel were leaving Egypt and they were making their way into the promised land, the slowest... The weakest, the older men and the small children and the wit, the women and, and some of the, the people who were diseased and crippled, they would find themselves at the end of the line of the children of Israel. And Amalek would come up from the rear and pray on the weak and the vulnerable and the helpless. That's exactly what sin does too, doesn't it? seems to take advantage of people who are weak and who are hurt and who are vulnerable, who find themselves not at the front of the army marching or even in the midst of the army protecting, but find themselves at the end of the line. And so the Lord said, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from out of Egypt. Amalek couldn't be spared. The, Amal the Amalekites, by the way, were the descendants of Esau. Do you remember when Isaac had his children and, and there was Jacob and Esau, the rejected firstborn from Genesis chapter 36, and like his father, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But remember what the New Testament says. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. When you became born again, God gave you a new nature, a spiritual nature. One that longed for God and wants to have the Lord Jesus Christ as a part of your life. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he's talking about this whole issue in Romans chapter 7, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I don't find. So even the Apostle Paul talks about this struggle that takes place between the flesh and the spirit and the spirit and the flesh and how they war against one another. And I've already told you the story many times of, of the man who who said, I feel like there are two dogs inside of me, a black dog and a white dog, and they're always fighting with each other. And somebody said, who wins? 
And he said, the one I feed. That's how it is in the spirit and the flesh, huh? When you feed the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, when you feed the flesh, you give the flesh exactly what it wants. You wake up in the morning, your flesh goes, feed me, so you get in the shower. Your flesh says, feed me, so you feed it. I need some hot tea, caffeine, 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 and so you drink it. Now, am I saying, please don't shower and please don't eat? I'm not saying that at all. I think the person next to you could just say, amen, thank you for taking a shower. No, it's not wrong to take care of physical needs. But there comes a dividing line between the flesh and the spirit because it's going to, one is going to rule and the other one is going to fight for that rule. And so in verse 3 it says, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing, child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now some people read that and they go, This sounds a whole lot like genocide. Oh, this sounds like Crimes against humanity. How could God, how can a good God, how can a loving God, how can a gracious God, how can, how can the God of the New Testament order the killing of every man and every woman and order the execution of every baby and nursing child, not to mention the animals? What did they ever do? You know, this is interesting to me because it implies that you're wiser and kinder and smarter and lovelier than God himself. Why would God do that? Why would God order the extinction of a tribal group of people and to utterly destroy them and not spare any of them? I have a question. Can a person... Or can people become so savage, so wicked, so corrupt that they're beyond repair, beyond repentance, beyond hope, beyond correction? Now, from your perspective, the answer might be, no. There's there's hope for everyone. But God knows the truth. God knows the truth that there are people who are wicked and evil, who are completely given over to savagery and violence and brutality and slavery and rape and lawlessness and abuse and cruelty and atrocity and corruption and evil and immorality and injustice. And even though you might find this hard to believe, but imagine an entire tribe of people who are like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, ooh, is right. Imagine an entire group of people who, this is what they would like to do. They would like to find you. They would like to sexually assault you. They would like to cut your head off and then put it in a jar of acid and watch the skin get leached right off the surface of your skull. And then keep you in a refrigerator as as a trophy. Now you might be thinking, are there people like that? Yeah, there are people like that. But there's something else. There is a group of people who are so violent, so brutal, so savage that they are going to be enlisted by Satan to destroy the children of Israel. Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Available, he puts it this way. But wasn't it cruel and unjust for God to command Israel to exterminate the nations in Canaan? Not in the least. To begin with, He had been patient with the nations for centuries and had mercifully withheld his judgment. Genesis chapter 15, 2 Peter 3, 9. Their society and especially their religion was unspeakably wicked. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And should have been wiped out years before Israel appeared on the scene. And something else is true. These nations had been warned by judgments God had inflicted on others, especially Egypt and the nations east of the Jordan. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Rahab and her family it's sufficient information to be able to repent and believe and God saved them. Joshua chapter 2 verse 6. 
Therefore, we have every right to conclude that God would have saved anybody who would have turned to him. These nations were sinning against a flood of light and rejecting God's truth and going their own way. God didn't want the filth of the Canaanite society and religion to contaminate his people Israel. Israel was God's special people chosen to fulfill divine purposes in the world. Israel would have given the world the knowledge of the true God, the Holy Scripture and the Savior. In order to accomplish God's purposes, the nation had to be separated from the nation. And then he writes, God is perpetually at war with sin. And that's exactly right. And so Amalek and the Amalekites become a type and a picture of sin. And God is at war with sin. Why? Because it will, first of all, infect you. And then it will creep into every pore of your existence. And then it will kill you. It says in verse 4, So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim. This is a ravine that is in the area of the Negev, 200 thousand foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Here's part of the deal. God promised Moses justice. And he is going to fulfill the promise with Samuel, with Saul, if he'll be obedient. Verse 5, and Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. In verse 6, then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. In this tribal group of people, the Kenites were actually a group of people that Moses had married into this family. And they had showed kindness. And so Saul singles them out for kindness because Israel was kind to them. You can see that in Judges chapter 4, verse 11. And then in verse 7 it says, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. If you, in your mind, can imagine the whole Sinai Peninsula from Havilah to Shur means all the way from the northern part of the peninsula all the way to the southern part of, of, of the peninsula, and he lays waste to the people. And in verse 8 it says, He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. In verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag. And note that in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lamb, all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Now, here's part of the thing you have to understand. When God made this edict, two things. God's making the edict. He's instructing them to engage in a holy war. And some of you might be thinking, wow, this sounds like a lot like Islam and a holy war. Well, it's different from Iran and Iraq, and it's different from the United States of America. Can Iran, can Iraq, can the United States of America speak with absolute authority concerning the goodness or the badness, the rightness, the wrongness, the past, the present, and the future? Is any nation capable of that? I, I know of no nation like that. Can any person talk with that kind of authority? Not really. Well, then how come Samuel can do it? Because he's hearing specifically from, from the word of God. Saul is guilty of doing the work of the Lord deceitfully and negligently. He takes Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Why? Why would he do that? What is Saul thinking? Well, he's a king and I'm a king. And if I was taken, how would I want people to treat me? With honor, with respect, with dignity, and treat me like a king should be treated? In Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 10, it says, Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. 
And cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good. In other words, they said, this is really good stuff. Why would We can do something with this. We can make good use of it. Now, the reason why this becomes such an important thing is you have to understand something. When God has instructed Saul to be the instrument of judgment and justice, he's to act with complete justice, impartially, in obedience. It isn't Saul and the children of Israel wiping out the Amalekites. What it is, is the children of Israel acting as the instrument of judgment and justice. Now, here's part of what you might have a struggle with. Is God just? What do you think the answer is? God is just. Question. Is God always just? The answer is yes. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. We're sometimes willing to obey God because it meets with our plan or our purpose or our will or our desire. And so when the Lord asks you to do something and you go, well, I agree with that. But when the Lord asks you to do something, you go, well, Lord, I'm not sure I I agree with that. Then you're making yourself out to be God. Because what you're suggesting is that God doesn't know what's best and he doesn't know what's right. Now, when we read the New Testament and we read Paul writing like in Colossians chapter three, verse five, where it says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And we read and we go, "Okay, here is Paul and he is saying that act in such a way you're supposed to be pure and holy. You're supposed to avoid sexual immorality and evil desires and wanting a bunch of junk that you already have enough of, which is idolatry. Most people, most people are willing to admit that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. But we live in a culture and a society where those distinctions are are becoming more and more blurred. Avoid sexual immorality. But you don't understand something, Lord. We love each other. And Lord, what were you thinking? Why would you bring this person into my life if you didn't want me to be sexually involved? Well, because guess what? A lot of things happen in our life, but I still want you to obey me. I still want you to honor me. Now, there are certain wicked things that no one will speak one word in defense if a voice inside of you says, Rob the bank. You go, what? That's crazy. Torture an innocent child just for fun. That's crazy. What person in their right mind would do such a thing? But we have a different list. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking of Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, I should have just marked it. Giants eat peas and corn. Yeah, that's how I remember. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more, Paul writes, circumcised on the eighth day the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, same as Saul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you think you're a religious person? I'm a Jew. You think you're a fanatic? Pharisee. You think you scrupulously do things that are right concerning the law? Blameless. But Paul writes, these things, these things, I have counted loss for Christ. 
Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as garbage, rubbish. Saul refuses to sacrifice what's best and brightest. Do you understand why the good things of Amalek are cataloged? It says, hey, look, sheep, oxen, fatlings, lambs. Do you know why they're being cataloged? Because here's what's going to happen to them. They're going to eventually be destroyed. Because God has ordered their destruction. He is going to expose the wickedness and they are eventually going to be destroyed. And so when we as Christians are asked the question, what is it that you want to hold on to that's keeping you from having real friendship and real relationship with Jesus? Because whatever it is that you're holding on to is going to eventually be destroyed. Because guess what? Everything, everything that exists, everything that exists apart from Jesus Christ is going to be reckoned and destroyed. Is there anything worth holding on to if it means not being able to hold on to Jesus? They're going to experience judgment. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, it says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and desire the idea of being, Hey, guess what? For those of you who have entered into real relationship with God in Christ, you've crucified the flesh, not reformed it, not just simply deprived it, but killed it. How often do we spare what we consider good and decent about ourselves? But unlike Paul, we're not willing to consider them refuse or count everything as lost. And this is the idea. Is it, did Paul have something to boast in when he says, I'm a Jew? Yeah. From the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace my lineage all the way back to Saul and the other Saul and Benjamin. They're from the same tribe. Saul spared the Amalekite. But you know what Saul doesn't understand the moment that he's sparing the Amalekite? If you read 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1-10, through 10, do you know how Saul dies? He's killed by an Amalekite. By the way, fast forward into the future. The children of Israel are taken into Babylon. They are in Babylonian bondage and then Cyrus and the Persians come and then the Jews are transported to Media and Persia and there's a woman who becomes the king of Persia. Her name is Esther and a man comes and he comes to a position of authority and he is going to embark on a genocidal extermination of the Jews. He's called Haman the Agagite. You know, he's a direct descendant of the Amalekites. Do they have the privilege or the picture of being able to see completely into the future? And if God has the ability to see into the future, and he goes, I see what's going to happen if you continue to allow these people to live. They're going to embark on a genocidal mission in order to wipe you completely off the map. And guess what? I have a plan and a purpose for you. And guess what? If you continue to embrace your sin and love your sin and coddle your sin and embrace your sin, be sure what the Bible says, that your sin will find you out. We may love our sin now. We may pet it and we may stroke it and we may see it's just such a little simple sin. It's just such a little tiny sin. It's even a cute sin. You know, I heard about a guy who who had a pet lion. 
little baby lion. He raised it from, from the time it was just a little cub. He, for whatever reason, he got access to this little lion cub and he fed it with the bottle and he raised it by hand and he petted it and, and it was his friend and the lion grew and the lion grew and he kept it in his apartment in New York and then he would lock it in the bathroom when he had to go off to work and then one day he came home and he opened the door and you guessed it, the lion ate him. Wait a minute, I raised him since he was a little cub. When you love something and you care for it and you raise it, it isn't going to eat you later. Oh, it just might. By the way, failure to deal with sin in the present does have consequences for the future. And look what it says in verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. By the way, in verse 10, when it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, the word of the Lord revealed Saul's disobedience to Samuel. Samuel is in Gilgal. He's headed for Carmel. The Lord reveals to Samuel... Saul's disobedience, and as he's re in that revelation, he says, I greatly repent, it says in the old King James, regret that I've set up Saul. And this creates a sort of a theological conundrum for some people. They go, well, wait a minute, what, are you saying that God changed his mind? Does God change his mind? No, God doesn't change. The purposes of grace never change. We're going to just... Fast forward real quick to verse 29. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. God's purposes in grace never change. So how are we to read this? Well, the way that we read it is this way. God's dealings and God's methods may change. His dealings and his methods change because guess what? Your ability to choose or choose otherwise, make no mistake about it, is very real. So when the Lord asks you to do something, do you have the ability to respond in obedience or disobedience? You do. You can obey or you can disobey. By the way, here's a quick question. You don't have to shout it out and embarrass me or embarrass yourself. When you do something really wicked and really wrong, are there consequences? Yeah. Does His love change for you? And does His grace change for you? And does His mercy change for you? No. But do the consequences create a mechanism where your usefulness or your not usefulness is severely hindered? The answer is yes. Don't miss Samuel's response. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord all night. Do you understand what's happening? Samuel is crying out to God. Samuel is weeping for Saul. Samuel is interceding for Saul. Now I want you to get the picture. Saul is disobeyed. He is throwing a party in Carmel and erecting a monument to himself. And as he's erecting the monument to himself, Samuel is weeping and crying throughout the night. But guess what? The tears of Samuel do not matter to Saul. They're thankless tears. Jesus would come into the city of Jerusalem and remember he would say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you under my arms like, like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. By the way, as Jesus is crying and he's crying the tears of the Savior, do you think the religious leaders give a rip about Jesus' tears? No. 
You know, sometimes we might find ourselves in a position in our life where someone we love and someone we believed in and someone that we counted on and someone that we trusted, we find ourselves on our knees and we find ourselves weeping in the secret places. Because that's exactly what it's going to take for Samuel to have the courage to confront Saul with the truth about his incomplete obedience. Later, Saul will cry. But his cries aren't for his sin. When Saul cries, he's not crying because of repentance over his sin, but he is crying because he's caught in his rebellion. You understand the difference between sorrow and repentance, right? Was Judas sorry that he betrayed Jesus? Yeah. It says he cried and then he killed himself. Was Salome, the dancing daughter-in-law of Herod, sorry that she asked for... Well, she asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter and was Herod sorry that he said, Hey, I'll give you whatever you want up to a third of my kingdom. He was sorry. And then he killed John the Baptist. Sorrow that results in somebody else dying or you dying is not repentance. Saul is sorry, but he's not repentant. And in verse 12, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, now remember, he rose early in the morning after crying all night long. Apparently, Saul has no idea. Saul went to Carmel. Indeed, he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Kilgal. The word monument is an interesting thing. It, it actually speaks of a type of a monument that he's erected that is a tribute to himself and a tribute to his victory. And then in verse 13 it says, Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel, he, he sees Saul. Saul, imagine him yelling at the top of his lungs, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Really? With a loud voice. He shouts. Saul hides his disobedience by boasting. I did what the Lord told me to do. By the way, when people yell at the top of their lungs, I did what the Lord told me to do. They're probably trying to drown out the voice of their own conscience. Really? Really? See, this is interesting. Saul is doing more than just lying. It's bad enough that he's lying. But he's celebrating his disobedience. He's glorying in his shame. He marched in celebration from Carmel to Gilgal. His plan is to cap off the whole affair with a massive barbecue, sacrifice, and feasting. Samuel walks into the camp. They're some 15 miles away. Peter Pell writes, the interview that follows reveals that Saul's sin in sparing for sacrifice what God had devoted for judgment brings judgment upon the one who spared. What an interesting statement. The interview that follows reveals that Saul's sin in sparing for sacrifice what God had devoted for judgment brings judgment upon the one who spared. Why is this important to you? What has God assigned for judgment? Everything apart from Christ. You see, apart from 
the sacrifice of Jesus, apart from the love of Jesus, apart from Jesus, everything that you've ever done, every wicked and every wrong thing, every good thing, every bad thing, everything that you've, uh, that you've taken to yourself is going to burn apart from Christ. The only thing that has value, the only thing that's going to matter, the only thing that is not set aside for judgment are those people who have entered into a right relationship with God and Christ. Saul's sin in sparing for sacrifice what God had devoted for judgment will bring judgment. What are you holding on to? What is it that you are refusing to let go of? And look what it says in verse 14. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? No matter how loud Saul screams, it doesn't drown out the sound of the animals that Saul has taken in the war. And the sound of the sheep and the cattle tell a different story. I did exactly what God what God told me to do. Well, then how do you account for your rebellion and disobedience? In ancient times, remember there was a donkey that betrayed a prophet by speaking out loud. Do you remember the story? Now, Balaam was a prophet about the time that Moses was coming through, and every now and then God would speak to him and tell him what to say and do, and he had a reputation in all those parts of being on the line of power. And when Moab's king heard that Moses was coming, he called him in his needy hour. And you'll remember Balaam got on the donkey and he started heading off to curse the children of Israel. And the donkey paused because remember there was an angel of the Lord blocking. And Balaam started beating the donkey and the donkey said, what have I ever done to you for you to treat me this way? Now, I don't know what's funnier that the donkey spoke or that Balaam spoke back and said, you foolish donkey. Yet you would think that you would go, okay. Donkey's talking to me. I need to sort of think about what's going on here and whether or not God is speaking to me. And now the cattle and the sheep. Now, here's, here's what you have to understand. The cattle and the sheep are already supposed to be dead. The very fact that they're speaking was a cry that the judgment on them and the guilt of King Saul was evident. In other words, the facts are always stubborn in the face of clever arguments and lame excuses. Don't confuse me with the facts. Facts are, the animals are still alive. And clever people can mask the odor of alcohol. Clever people can mask the foul stench of whatever sin that they are trying to hide with pious phrases. But make no mistake about it. Be sure that your sin will find you out. And Saul is hard-pressed to deny the obvious. In verse 15, Saul said, They brought them from the Amalekites for the people. It's the people. You have to understand, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Look, I tried to do exactly what God wanted me to, and I was manipulated into doing a little less by my wife, by my husband, by my children. By my neighbors. <gasps> By my church. If your wife, if your husband, if your neighbors, or even the people in your church ask you to disobey God, good thing or bad thing? It's a bad thing. Saul blames the people. And you know what? Let's just be clear here. Does the excuse contain an element of truth? The answer is yes. Did the people want to spare what was best? Because all of this good stuff, it doesn't make sense to just simply get rid of it. I mean, this is stuff you can really use. But remember, God's judgment was that it was all had to go. That all evidence of 
Amalek had to completely disappear. You know, again, here's the lesson for you. What part of sin are you willing to retain? Which part are you willing to keep alive and keep going? Because it just seems so right and it seems so good and it seems so pleasant. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. By the way, when you are involved in a, in a, in a conversation of all the reasons why you should hold on to your sin, the right answer is, shut up. Shut up. And then he goes, I'm going to tell you what the Lord told me. And i got to, again, remember, I don't think Samuel would have been able to basically say, shut up or be quiet. I'm going to tell you what the Lord said. Unless he'd stayed up all night and prayed and wept before the Lord. Do you remember Samuel when he was a young man? Remember how, as a little boy, he heard the voice of the Lord. And you'll remember Eli, the high priest, he said, okay... When the voice says to you, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Do you remember how the Lord told Samuel, the little boy Samuel, all the bad news about Eli? And and Samuel goes, I don't think I want to tell him. And Eli threatened him and he just said, look, may the Lord do to you what the Lord said to you unless you tell me. He goes, got me, I'm going to tell you. Samuel was very, very old now. But when Samuel was very, very young and very, very old, he was faithful. In verse 17, so Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Verse 18, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Verse 19, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil? And why did you do evil in the sight of the Lord? The message of Samuel contains three elements. Number one, Samuel reminds Saul of his former insignificance and the source of his present high position. Look, it's the Lord who placed you where you are. There is a reason why you are where you are. There's a reason why you get to do what you get to do. Saul owed everything to the Lord. So do you. So do you. No matter what good thing you think that you may have, no matter what privilege that you think that you may have, you owe it all to the Lord. And then number two, Samuel sweeps away the refuge of lives and the cobweb of excuses and the paper-thin rationalizations which Saul tried to, to hide behind. You know what a rationalization is. A plausible but untrue excuse of why you're doing what you're doing. You can make up all of the excuses that you need to to continue in your sin, but Samuel just wipes them away and he repeats the crystal clear commandment of the Lord in very plain terms. What is it that Jesus has asked you to do? Love the Lord. Love each other. Love Him. Serve Him. And number three, then Samuel directs Saul and holds up a statement like a flashing sword, like a piercing light, this unmistakable rock. Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? Is there some sort of mitigating circumstance? Did you you have an aneurysm and did your brain you have a brain clot or something? You passed out. There's got to be a reason. Why didn't you just simply do what the Lord wanted you to do? Verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Look what Saul does. He dodges the question. And look what Saul doesn't do. He doesn't tremble at the voice of the Lord. He doesn't deny. He he denies any wrongdoing. 
By the way, when the Lord speaks to you and says, why don't you just simply do what I ask you to do? The right response is, you are right, Lord. I should have done exactly what you asked me to do. In my rebellion, in my disobedience, in my hypocrisy, in my selfishness, I decided to do what I wanted to do, and it was wrong, wrong, wrong. And you know what's good about that? You don't necessarily escape the bruising, but you escape the crushing. Do you remember when you were a little kid? Maybe you don't. But I had the kind of grandma who would say, turn over. And, and get your switching. I had two choices. I could run from my grandma or I could bend over and take the switch. You know, when I was, I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, but when I was a younger man, I could run a hundred yards in less than ten seconds. And my grandma could run faster than me. You know how I got picked up by the track team? The, the track, a, a police officer told the track coach, Gino Geraci can run a hundred yards in 10-2. And the coach said, well, 10-2 is pretty fast, but it's not that fast. And, and, and the police officer said, carrying a color television set? That's when I got recruited by the track team. Saul's pleading. He's begging. Verse 21, but the people took the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And these famous words, which we will pick up when we return, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you've re rejected the word of the Lord he's also rejected you simple submission to the will of God simple submission to the will of God is elevated above all the religious activity. It's elevated above loading altars and lighting candles and giving gifts and writing checks. Self will sink to the lowest depth, to the depths of idolatry. Look what it says. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. By the way, you know what the Hebrew word for idolatry is in this particular instance? Emptiness. Isn't that interesting? And stubbornness is as iniquity and emptiness. The idea being, whatever you thought was valuable, whatever you thought was good, whatever you thought was cool, whatever you thought would somehow give you the kind of stimulation that you needed is really an empty nothingness and the stern sentence of final disapproval rejection is given because you've rejected the word of the Lord he's rejected you it's king I want you to think for just a moment for the person who says I don't care what the Bible says. And I am not going to do what the Bible tells me to do. Becomes an invitation to judgment. This is what's really cool. When you say, I believe what the Bible says. And I believe the promises of God and I believe in the grace of God and I believe in the mercy of God and I believe in the justice of God and I believe that God loves me and is working everything together for my good because I love him and because he loves me. And even though I don't think I have exactly what I think I need right now, I know that God is greater and smarter than me and he is going to provide for me exactly what I need right now. 
It's an invitation to grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. The Lord was looking for surrender from Saul. But Saul wanted to be the king. And he wanted to make the choice. And he wanted to make the decision. And each and every one of us is left with that option. Are you going to be the king or the queen? Are you going to be the deciding factor? Or is Christ going to be the deciding factor? Is Jesus going to make the choice? Or are you going to make the choice? No wonder Jesus said, If you love me, you will do as I ask you to do. You'll obey me. Jesus isn't impressed with religious activity. But he's impressed with humility and with surrender. I'm so glad we have to stop. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's so much more that we must glean from these particular verses. But Lord, I hope that we will will glean the most important issue. Incomplete obedience is total disobedience. Lord, if we've been following you in a half-hearted way, if you've asked us to do things and, and we've been putting you off, Lord, we pray that instead of making excuses and ex- instead of having blame, that, Lord, it would be our desire to just in simple obedience and submission admit that you know what's best. That you know the past and the present and the future. That, Lord, you see hearts and circumstances and things that are completely unknown to us. That, Lord, there is rhyme and there is reason of why you're doing what you're doing and why you're asking what you're asking. And, Lord, we pray that in simple humility and submission, Lord, we would just simply say, Lord, we're listening. We're listening. Lord, speak so that we can have the privilege of doing what it is that you're asking us to do. And if that means abandoning the sin, Lord, that we'll get rid of it. That, Lord, we will no longer keep pet sins in the hopes that they'll never grow up. Lord, we know that sin is awful and wicked. And in the end, it will kill us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not hold on to sin But rather, Lord, we would hold on to grace. The grace that's found in the merciful sacrifice of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.